0: And really when we communicate, we're acting, we're trying to, we're trying to tell a story and the best communicators in the world know how to use the power of inflection, modulation, tonality, volume, and, you know, look, all great skills begin with a desire and that's the genesis.
1: A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today my guest is Nick Webb. He's an author and serial entrepreneur. He's founder and CEO of Leader Logic. He worked with Fortune 500 companies to help them lead their industries in innovation strategy and customer experience design. He's also been awarded over 40 patents by the US Patent and Trademark Office. And he's the author of What Customers Crave, How to Create Relevant and Memorable Experiences at Every Touchpoint. Nick is known as an innovation evangelist. Nick is a certified management consultant through the internationally accredited Institute of Management Consultants. He's also a Six Sigma black belt professional. Nick was awarded a doctorate of humane letters from Western University of Health Sciences, where he also serves as an adjunct professor and the chief innovation officer. In this interview, we talk about getting better every day. Of course, we talk about innovation, what it is, how to drive it, how to deal with it. We talk about disruption. We talk about the biggest risk to any organization. We explore the idea that anyone can innovate, that you don't have to be a genius, you just have to be willing. We also talk about what makes organizations great. We talk about three trends of innovation, hyper-consumerization, enabling technologies, and changing economic models. We talk about the power of emotionalized thought. We explore an idea called future casting. We talk about the biggest thing you can do to make sure customers hate you and how to avoid it or at least reduce it. Nick is an accomplished author and speaker. I asked him to share what he's learned about being an effective communicator and his response was very practical. I think you'll find it useful. Oh, by the way, what his response in the enlightening lightning round regarding what he does to make his travel less painful or more enjoyable is really brilliant. None of my 80 guests have said anything like it. Nick is an inventor. Nick is someone who I believe truly deserves the title of next level thinker As one example. I'll share with you the idea that there was a point in Nick's career where he made the decision that he would not write bad books. It's a decision I wish more authors would make, but the idea that that's even the kind of decision we can make seems invisible as far as I can tell to most people. But Nick's perspective, his experience, his insight and advice, I think is truly remarkable. You can learn more about Nick at nickwebb.com, N-I-C-K-W-E-B-B.com, nickwebb.com, or goleaderlogic.com. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Nick Webb. Nick, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to see you. Nick, will you tell me, please, what's life about? (laughs) Wow, that's
0: a big question. Well, you know, actually, it's interesting. I I am enjoying the benefits of what I like to call age-onset lucidity. As you get older, you begin to realize that making lots of money is easy, but the hard part and the tricky part is making a difference. And in a book that I'm working on right now that'll be out in 2021, I, I sort of cataloged all these amazing lessons that I learned from native american chiefs metaphysicians psychiatrists philosophers southern baptist ministers scotland yard detectives and and i begin to realize as i referenced their teachings to me is that there are really sort of three things that create an amazing life and i think the first one is is that as covey said in the 1920s that everything about life is about our own evolution. It's about the authoring of our own self, the authoring of our evolution. And so he believed that every day in every way you should get better. And I I find that I am most happy when I am in noticeable evolution, solving problems, figuring out new things. You know, people ask me, well, Nick, you know, you've got over 40 patents, why do you invent? And the answer to that question is because it invents me back. Right, And that's what's beautiful about endeavoring and exploring and being inquisitive. So I think that the answer to that are these three principles that I learned in heyday, And that is that in every day, in every way, your life should be better. You should be authoring your own evolution. Secondly, you need to wake up every day and as you look at your feet, sitting on the floor, getting out of bed, you should make sure that your day that you have planned ahead is a mission that matters you know, so many people are involved in being busy, but they're not involved in a mission that really matters. And then the third thing that I learned about what life is all about is that the only missions that matter are missions that are in the service of others. And so if you think about it, if every day in every way you're getting better to create the tools and systems and processes to serve a mission that matters, that's in the service of others, that may be the answer to that question.
1: It sounds easy, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. It, it's a beautiful framework. What I wonder is I hear you articulate that is where, if at all, does enjoyment come in? Because I think it could well, be easy to get on that track of serving others, but be kind of a martyr about it. Right. Well,
0: so I believe that we come equipped into this material world with a dashboard and the dashboard has a green light, a yellow light, and a red light and it turns out that when we are in pain, we are probably not in on purpose right and i you know the, yesterday, I looked at my watch and it was eight thirty and I'm like, "How did that happen i don't want to stop I'm having too much fun right now right and and so if you're in that place, when i speak i i, I It's so frustrating to me because I feel like I only had three minutes. Can I have a few more minutes, right? So the the universe tells us through pleasure that if you think about the central nervous system in our body is designed to let us know if we're injuring ourselves. So if you hit your finger with a hammer, it will immediately create a pain signal that tells you to stop hitting yourself with a hammer. Yet we receive these kinds of pain signals in our spiritual and human experience and yet we don't pay attention to it. The, the, so, you know, so happiness is very much, in, in fact the subtitle of Heyday is how to make every day the best day of your life. And you do that by being in pleasure, with being lost in your own evolution in a mission that matters. The missions that matter are pleasurable, right? Serving other people is the ultimate form of pleasure. So I think it's easy, now there are people that look at their work of making money You know, a lot of people focus on making money, making money, and they believe that's that should be their mission. But if your mission isn't connected to the service of others, and it's just about making money, chances are you'll receive pain signals from the universe. At least that's been my experience. When I I feel unhappy and I don't
1: have pleasure, it probably means I'm off purpose. I, I think you're absolutely right. And Nick, in some ways, I think you're uniquely qualified to speak about this, or you definitely have an authority based on your unique, your broad and unique background. And you've already mentioned a couple of things that you do here in this conversation about inventing, about speaking, about writing. So you're definitely a multi-hyphenate talent. <laughs> but I wonder for those listening, if you'd be willing to share when you meet someone new or maybe when you're introduced from a stage, how do you like to be described or how do you, how do you typically describe who you are and what you do?
0: It's funny, the, the other day, I think it was well, the other day, a few months ago, we were at a, at a sort of gathering and I had my family with me and a person came up to me and says, so Nick, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an adjunct professor. I'm also a chief innovation officer for the largest health science university in the country. I'm a best-selling author. I'm an inventor. You know, I said it not in such a self-promoting style, but I basically described what I did. And my daughter afterwards said, dad, that sounds fake.
1: <laughs> right,
0: and it sounds fake to me sometimes, too, like how is that even possible right so you know to me i i really to, to, to me i 'm an explorer I, I my purpose in life is to wake up every day and learn i i am uh, that is my jam. I wake up every day to explore, and I push buttons and pull knobs, much of which I should not be i mean if you, but you know my history is kind of interesting. I was born and raised in San Bernardino, California, which I believe is the, the one of the most dangerous cities in California. I remember you know, hearing at school of kids you know, regular to being stabbed on the way to school. There was uh, riots. Uh, it, was a, it was a rough place and continues to get rougher today. And my parents were the working poor. My dad repaired refrigerators. My mom sold classified advertising for the LA Times. And there were seven of us living in an 800 square foot home in a very, very bad neighborhood. And in school, I struggled until finally, when my brother and I were 12 years old, they uh, brought us to the principal's office, called my mother to the office and proclaimed that I hate to tell you this, but your kids are severely mentally retarded because we did so poorly in school. And, uh, you know, that was pretty close to being the bottom to have an authority figure who, by the way, never asked me even a question to come up with that, that educationally handicapped diagnosis. It was pretty, pretty rough, right? And, and then I began to realize that I do have a different way of seeing the world. I'm a visual learner. But, you know, when I think about the journey from, you know, total poverty and educationally handicapped to adjunct professor, author, and all these things, it's, it's, it's jarring to me that that happened. And it all was about the fact that I, I never metabolized that, that idea, uh, went on to go to college and did extremely well in college. Went on to, you know, my, I think I sold my first company in my early 20s for several million dollars and, you know, have uh, invented one of the world's smallest medical implants for ocular surface disease, one of the first wearable technologies. So I think that, you know, for me, the journey was really circuitous, bizarre, but it, it changed my perspective for, for me today when I look at my personal self-definition is I'm, I'm just a, a very, very enthusiastic learner we moved from california to scottsdale and in a matter of three weeks i learned every plant and every reptile and every insect and every everything and you know it that's that that's the kind of and i, and I think that's the, the the key to a lot of people that succeed they, they are really really interested in looking at the operational system of life
1: yeah no doubt that's i definitely see that with my dad you know as a successful entrepreneur and business person learning everything about everything he came in contact with, you know, he became an expert on construction and concrete and, you know, all the things you'd expect like financing, but even things that I thought were totally unusual, like trees, you know, that would go on the plaza of the, or in, in, in the grounds of the the facilities we created. So now I love that. And I'm curious too, as you talk about your upbringing, obviously, you know, our childhood years are so formative for all of us and, the way you described that you didn't metabolize that you didn't adopt, you know, that label that had been given to you about, you know, being disabled. What do you think? So two parts of this question, what do you think, or how did you avoid internalizing that? Yeah. And two, what changed between the time, like what allowed you to be a great student by the time you reached college, but not so good prior to that?
0: Yeah, well, I think that the not good student part was me listening to somebody who wasn't a very good speaker that were telling me things that I feel like at most of the times I probably already knew. I didn't have a view of the chalkboard. I had a view outside the window, right? And to me, it seemed like a horrible clerical job to go to school. And I have an interesting petri dish here because I have an identical twin brother. And he too, on the same day, was also proclaimed as educationally handicapped. He went on to graduate from college very successfully and now owns a multi, multi-million dollar company that he's having a blast with and impacting the world and, and has ran that business for decades. Wow. So I, I think that my brother and I talked about this recently. I think that what it is is that it never made sense. I mean, you know, you, you, it just never, like you've got to be kidding me, right? Like, I don't, you know, you're, you, you know, this, I'm listening to a teacher that can't even articulate a sentence yeah. and you're judging me. Right. And so I think the thing was, it just never occurred to me that they could have possibly been right. And unfortunately for a lot of kids, and I see this with ADD and ADHD and all of the the diagnoses, you know, drug companies love to find things to, to give people medicine for.
1: Yeah. Create subscribers. uh,
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, and the the bottom line is, thank God they didn't do it to Einstein, who would have easily been diagnosed as a as a, you know. I, I'm in good company. There's a great book called The Mind's Eye. It turns out that uh, Winston Churchill and Einstein, Edison, they all very much had the same pathway. You know, they were considered to be imbeciles. And in the work that I do, you know, people think I'm a Harvard graduate and I was raised at the country club. I don't know where they came up with that because. That was not my, that was not my journey. But I, I think that the less, the takeaway from me was that, that never, ever let somebody else determine your
1: value, yeah. no matter who you are. Yeah, that that's powerful. And in this book, The Mind's Eye, is this David Hawkins or is this a different Mind's Eye? I
0: hate to say it. Uh, I hate to say it, I can't remember. There's actually three books, I think, and I can't remember the author of this one, but I uh, actually a, a world famous ophthalmologist gave it to me and signed it and said, Nick, this describes you. Wow. which was a real honor because I had a lot of respect for Dr. Freeman. And, but yeah, I think, I, I think that the, the, everybody out there has incredible worth. Everybody out there has a unique and special value that only they can bring to the universe. Yeah. And unfortunately, we allow, the average kid listens to 300 negative comments each and every day on television and at school. You know, as somebody who runs the Center for Innovation and, and has been involved in, in developing innovation systems for the largest corporations in America... I can tell you that a lot of people revere me as this innovative genius, which is such a joke because that would be like calling me a breathing genius. We all have the same pulmonary system. We're all born with with literally an unlimited amount of innovative and creative power. It manifests differently. Some people manifest it as as painters and poets. Some manifest it as unbelievable human humanitarians and Others, as business leaders, we all come here with unique and special gift that only we can deliver to the universe. But the worth and the value of that specialness is equal. It's not disparate and it's not, there is no range of that innovative quotient that we're all born with.
1: I think, I think that's such a beautiful perspective. And it's, it's not one that I had always believed, mainly because it hadn't occurred to me. You know, it just seemed to me, oh, some people are geniuses you know and they or they're superhuman and they they have a gift that makes them so different from the average human being or different from me but I love what you're saying and I've come to believe it and to share it as well but I know you know not everyone believes it not everyone subscribes to this idea which of course makes it very unlikely that they will discover it and live it yeah. so the question I have for you is let's just say that somebody's willing to try that belief on and say okay I haven't found it yet maybe I'm in middle age maybe maybe I've missed the boat what do you say to somebody who hasn't found it and maybe is skeptical about whether or not it's true that they have this, their own innate, unique form of genius? What do you say to them and how, how could they go about finding it?
0: Yeah, right. Well, I'll tell you the reason I decided to start this journey of Heyday and Heyday I love because it's the first book I've written in my life that didn't have a commercial shipping address, right? When you do the kind of work I do as a consultant and as a speaker and a person that owns businesses, and especially in the work I do in healthcare, you know, at the end of the day, you're writing because it's part of your commercial brand and, and it has a shipping address. When I wrote Heyday, it was really about, again, impact. What can I do to take these learnings that took me from educationally handicap and poverty to wealth and success and happiness? And the answer, the answer really was in this, these, these various teachers that appeared in my life. And they, were, they, were, they came from very unusual places. And I'll tell you a story that started this. I, I was traveling to Miami, Florida, and I sat next to a gentleman, middle aged, I would say early 60s. And um, he had sold one of his cars so that he could afford one of his used cars so that he could afford a first class ticket to go to his high school reunion. I had the opportunity to to listen to Jim talk the entire four or five hour flight to Miami. And it was really interesting. His entire discussion was about when he was 18 years old and he was the quarterback and he was extremely popular and he was dating the prom queen. And at that time, he had a brand new Chevy whatever, right? And it was uh, everybody could not believe that he had this beautiful car. So he was a star athlete. He was dating the prom queen. He had this great car. And, and in fact, to this day, every weekend, he goes to these car shows and leans up against his 57 Chevy or whatever the thing is and talks about back when he didn't suck, right? That's really unbelievable. And he spent his whole life in retrospect about talking about that back when he was relevant and back when people, when, when he felt good about himself. That's the, that's the heyday concept that I talk about is that we have to remember that we, you know, we're no longer crawling on the floor. We no longer need diapers. We are always evolving. The problem is, is that we, we fail to believe the limitless ability to evolve. We all believe in evolution, but we have to get to the, to the believing place that our best is ahead of us. And and that's why I dissected it into these three principles that were brought to me through these various teachers is that are you getting better today? Are you better today in every way? Is the mission that you're on today, does it matter? Jim worked at a lumberyard that he started at after high school, passed on college, got promoted to a manager, then became a store manager, and that's where he peaked and it's it's just i think that that story of jim lives with so many people you know when did i look at people and i feel like asking them when did you decide to give up when did you decide to stop authoring your own evolution when did you decide to stop impacting favorably others and it's not about wealth and it's not about financial success although that oftentimes is a derivative it's really about our ability to believe that we're here to do something special and that's something that's very personal that has to be emotionalized and It's hard to say. Sometimes, unfortunately, psychiatrists say that often it comes from what's referred to as meaningful consequence. In other words, you know, somebody uh, has, uh, you know, living a mediocre life, they're drinking, they hit a tree, they almost die, and they sit in the hospital bed. And that meaningful moment was a strategic inflection point for them. So most people get there through adverse meaningful consequence, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I, I've definitely recognized that in, in my life and in the coaching I do. You know, this, this common experience seems, you know, it's almost maybe universal human experience that pain really is the universal way of getting our attention. Yeah. And that when the pain is bad enough, we'll change. But it's perhaps the wise among us who don't wait for that painful event or that meaningful <laughs> consequence.
0: Right, right. I, I yeah, like, because I what like most that. people do when the red light goes on in the dashboard, they immediately go under anesthesia in the form of drugs and alcohol. Or even in the form of compulsive behaviors and all kinds of other self-destructive behaviors. Again, the universe wants us to be happy. There's a great book written by Paul uh, 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 Pilser, I believe his name was, years ago, 30 years ago, maybe. And the the book was called God Wants You to Be Rich. And, you know, God does want you to be rich. God wants you to be happy. The universe, you know, as Einstein said, the universe is a friendly place. And it's here and it wants you to be happy and succeed. And when you're not happy and succeeding, you're off purpose. And I think that developing that neural connectivity between your dashboard and your behaviors, that's maybe the secret.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Well, then that question you asked, it's so powerful. When you look at someone and you ask, when did you decide to give up? I remember when we met and you spoke to, to our company, You talked and you were talking about innovation. You talked about these three things that organizations do, and it certainly resonated with me about, yeah, I think people do that too, about yeah. they either give up Right. They keep on doing what they've been doing or they innovate. Right. Right. Yeah. And and I wonder maybe if you'd be willing to talk about if we can kind of mosey the conversation in the direction of innovation for just a bit, recognizing right. this is relevant, you know, to to us again as individuals, as organizations, if we have leadership positions or we aspire to. Would you be okay if we kind of Absolutely go that way? cool?
0: So, you know, I think that that's the one thing I learned. I have a best selling book out right now called The Innovation Mandate. And in researching, you know, thousands of companies over a period of three years and the executives that work there and the leaders that work there, what I realized is, is that a lot of people rather, they may not wake up and proclaim that to their wife. Hey, I just want to let you know, honey, I've decided to give up today, right? So what they do is they give up quietly, but they give up nevertheless, and they quit. They either physically quit. I mean, right now, believe it or not, and there are executives that are so afraid of of disruption of the things that are changing around us that they have decided to quit and they've either quit by retiring or they've quit emotively so that's where things get really really bad because when you quit because you're not willing to evolve that's when you de- you develop a, what I call developmental stasis where you are in a suspended state of self and enterprise evolution the, the second phase is legacy. And it's the, it's the most insidious because what I see all the time, especially with organizations that have been, the, the biggest risk to an individual and the biggest risk to an organization is not failure, it's success. Because in success, we're emboldened to believe that our legacy system will get us to where we need to go, despite the fact that the changes that are happening are logarithmic. They are changing exponentially. Everything about the economy, especially now in the middle of a global pandemic, everything is changing. Everything is changing. We will come back to a post-C19 economy. And the post-C19 economy will mandate organizations and individuals and entrepreneurs to be expert innovators. And the good news is, is that anybody can do this stuff. You don't have to be Einstein. You just have to be willing to do what's necessary. And that means Stop believing that you're not living on a burning platform. Stop believing that the stuff that's going on outside your red brick building isn't relevant to you, right? Stop believing that you will not be disrupted because you will. Legacy is a absolute major problem because, again, it's easy. Like, you know, I do a lot of work in higher education. In higher education, it's always been the same. And so it's always going to be the same. Well, it turns out according to the late Clay Christensen, you know, as much as a third of universities will be bankrupt in the next 20 years. Look at healthcare, 25 to 35% of hospitals will be bankrupt. Healthcare and I have a book coming out this September called The Healthcare Mandate and I have a documentary film that I'm really excited about called Fixing Healthcare that'll be out this fall as well. And so when you, you know, the, the, the legacy part is something you must be, you, you, the, the key to all human and enterprise improvement and change is one very simple concept. You must live consciously. You must, uh, great marriages are made up when people live consciously. Great organizations are made up of people who live consciously. Being conscious means paying attention to the environment around you and having an openness to morphing and changing and innovating. But the three phases are giving up. That's probably 10% of most leaders and companies. 80% are doubling down on legacy, which is the status quo. But only about 10% will innovate. And these innovators will say, this is irrelevant. I'll give you some real practical examples. We have an optometry school in my university. Are optometrists a thing? Maybe not according to alternative where you can go online and actually get refracted with your iPhone. Why do people love it? Because consumers love when you eliminate friction. Yeah. Think about Eargo. Eargo likely will destroy audiologists. Think about PillPack that's recently been acquired by Amazon. Probably will destroy the pharmacist. Pharmacy regist- people that are, we have a pharmacy school at my university. Every pharmacy school in the country has reductions in people wanting to be pharmacists because we don't know that pharmacists are a thing. And I could go on and on and on there are three big trends that are driving disruption. Number one is hyper-consumerization. Consumers want Amazon, Apple-like experiences. They want them to be friction-free. They want them to be customized and relevant. The other trend is enabling technologies and connection architecture. If something can be connected, it will be connected. And when it's connected, it'll deliver far more enterprise and customer value. And the third one is we're changing the economic models completely and totally. A great company like Lemonade, you want to get renter's insurance? They can set you up in four minutes. You got a claim? They can allow you to file a claim in just six minutes. Their website is beautiful and what you see when you go to the Lemonade website is stark because it's not what you see, it's what you don't see, right? It's like when you open up your iPhone box, it's not what you see, it's what you don't see. A 900-page manual of how to fix error codes because there are no error codes ever.
1: Yeah, it just works.
0: Yeah. It's beautiful. So so those are the key is uh, don't quit. Don't double down on legacy. Innovate because that's where the future opportunities are, especially now. Look, I mean, in my professional, I have a million dollar speaking business. I woke up one day and there was no such thing as a speaking business anymore. And did I freak out? No. I put a studio in my office and if I you know, I'll deliver it virtually and if I don't deliver it virtually, I have 9,000 other things that I, that I need time to work on. So it's cool, right? Yeah. And, and that's what it means to innovate is, you know, stay calm and do cool things that, that are authoring your evolution that are mat- missions that matter to you in the world that serve others. If you stick with that guideline, it's hard to go wrong. Yeah.
1: No, I, I agree and what what you're saying when you talk about I love that the organizations like great organizations are made up of people who live consciously and and as I hear you describe that what it, what comes to mind is you know people who are people who are awake, people who are alive, people who yeah. are responsive to yeah. like you're saying to the environment, to the other people around them, not just head down chasing the bottom line doing what we've always done because, you know, that's worked or that's what that's what our competitors are doing or whatever.
0: Yeah. I think every board of directors needs to have somebody completely outside the enterprise that is an expert innovator that serves as the disruptor, that questions legacy, that allows them to not die. Because, I mean, look at automotive industry. The automotive industry is going to change in an incredible way, especially driven by hyper-consumerization, especially by changing, well, there's many things that will change it. So do we try to react in time whilst we're in the middle of it? Right now, our university, for example, we're, we have developed three scenarios that could potentially happen. And we've already invented very detailed weaponized responses to what those three scenarios could potentially be. Organizations don't develop innovation scenario planning. They don't do future casting, which is shocking to me. The truth of the matter is there are that, that it's like having a telescope and looking out into the and in the outer space you need somebody that has the telescope that can look at that distant planet but you you need to look at these signals that are beyond your current environment of your day in and day out operation so that you can take those disparate signals and aggregate them to understand their meaning to your future the best organizations in the world that that are living future readiness they have, they have developed a future readiness strategy and future casting activities, right? Most people that are going to fail, they're so busy in the moment that they get disrupted. And I've seen so many organizations get blindsided because of that. You
1: mean like the typical SWOT analysis and the strategic plan aren't enough?
0: <laughs> That's kinder strategy at this point.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, it is amazing this, you know, this term more and more I'm hearing applied to VUCA a you know, world that we live in and but this one of future casting I hadn't heard before. Will you talk a little bit more? I mean, what do you, what do you mean by that? What and how does one do it?
0: So if you believe in the premise that I that I teach in my book, there are three things that your future is made of as an enterprise. One is the incredible change in the way consumers see the world. In my best-selling book, what customers crave I, I spent five years writing that book and it was, I learned so much about where we're heading as consumers. So what are consumer, how do consumers expect that experience to look like, you know, five years from now? Well, we can we can look at those trends. You know, I'll give you some examples. If you take a look at organizations that get it, like Apple, which is the most profitable retailer in the world, what they have done is some pretty interesting things. First of all, Apple knows that the biggest thing that makes customers hate you across all customer personas is friction. Friction is the killer. It is absolutely the killer. So what is the best thing that you can do to eliminate friction? You hire a bunch of people that can help the customer. Duh. But you know, go into another major retailer, and I won't mention any names, but go into a major electronic retailer and try to find somebody, not just somebody, but somebody that actually knows a product. It's impossible, right? I was at a big box retailer, and the person actually handed me the box to read it, so that I could, right? No so way. that so <laughs> eliminate friction. The other thing that Apple does is Apple politely probes you because they want to know your persona. Once they know your persona, they have pre-invented the perfect experience for you, right? So what we so people want that experience. They want an, an Amazon experience where you know they 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 can eliminate risk by looking at the hyper influential community of people who have bought products. So they can say, wow, that, you know, it has a a 4.5 star review. I think this is a safe product to buy. And they now use AI algorithms to be able to make sure that there is authentic uh, community ratings. So, I, I mean, the point is, is that consumerization is changing very, very fast. There should be in future casting, you have to have a consumer trend track. What are, what are, what are the, the disruptors doing? How are they leveraging journey mapping? Every or Every company has five touch points. A pre-touch moment, a first touch moment, a core moment, a last touch moment, and an in-touch moment. Those have to be architected perfectly across a range of about four to six personas. So consumerization is the best thing that you can do to anticipate changes. Yeah. So the other one is, what are the enabling technologies and what do they mean to our industry? You know, what does, you know, the connected consumer, how do, how are they going to view our product or service differently? What, how is AI going to impact it? Is 3D an issue? Is immersive VR an issue? Is, 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 right? How are all these Really, really powerful enabling technologies going to impact my industry in the next five years? And then, lastly, what are the economic trends and value trends that are changing that we need to build a thought process around? So, the best brands in the world that have safety, because you have to start there, I mean, growth is part of this as well, but just to batten down the hatches you need to have a future casting and innovation activity that looks across those three tracks. Across consumerization, or what I like to call hyper-consumerization, across enabling technologies and connection
1: architecture, and lastly, new value and economic model. So much comes up for me when I hear you describe this. And the first thing that comes up is I look at our business, is I think about, especially, you know, where we sell a lot of automobiles every every year. You know, more than 100,000 new and used cars a year. And how, you know, business globally, and I think maybe particularly in the United States was already so short term focused, you know, quarterly results, you know, right. and year over year, where in the auto business 30 day cycles are, are everything. Yeah. And to talk about even five years out, you know, and the, the urgency, and the responsibility of running an operation you know a single dealership with 80 or 100 employees and and how busy those leaders are already to think what you're saying makes perfect sense to me you know to be able to stand back see the big picture you know figure out how can these things how will they connect how can we use them when they do what's going on in you know consumer behavior and things like that yeah so just acknowledging and, and I think that's probably why you say every organization needs someone. Not that everybody should do all this all the time, but that you know, there's somebody who's performing this essential function and probably the whole team from time to time having these conversations. Yeah, right. Right. And and then this other thing that I love about what you're saying too, like with these five touch points and customer customer journey mapping, where when when I heard you speak, you talked about how you know there's these two kinds of innovation. There's the stuff that is the obvious. We think about new technology, you know, new inventions, but there's also new business models. Yeah. You know, as, and that's, as every bit of course is, is real and valid. And for a lot of organizations who are maybe in this legacy mode or this, you know, they're, they're being carried forward by their momentum that it hasn't even occurred to them that, Hey, you have a customer journey or your customer is having a journey. Is it the one that you want them to have? Right. Right. And I think that's really such a powerful place for leaders to look for, whatever competitive advantage, greater service, more profit, you know, if they just become aware of what they might have been previously unaware of, but that's back to what you were saying about great organizations made up of people who are living consciously.
0: That's it. And it's, it's easy, you know, on 30-day cycles. Like, for an example, you've, during my presentation in Hawaii to your group, you know, there was a question like, well, why don't you like net promoter scores? Well, because yeah. they don't provide accurate information, right? Yeah. I just, a, I just bought a side-by-side Polaris and they sent me one of their, their, their questions right after the purchase. That's interesting, but, you know, it's not nearly enough to be able to determine what that experience is like because the net experience has to do with their first oil change. It has to do with, you know, what their experience is like through finance. And all of these other uh, disparate touch points across a, the process of purchasing a car. That you've mentioned new economic models. I think Carvana and some of these other things are, these are signals, right? Mm-hmm. Carvana is not going to take over dealerships, but these are signals. And these signals tell us when we future cast the way in which we need to, where we need to be. There are, there are. In, in healthcare, you know, you can die from a stroke and, you, and if you die from a stroke, it was either from a variable risk factor or a non-variable risk factor or a combination of both. The reason that organizations die is they die from a combination of variable and non-variable risk factors. A non-variable risk factor for automotive dealers, and I do a lot of work in that space, is the fact that autonomous vehicles are going to have a major impact. The, 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 I, the fact that millennials see cars as a Uber app. The fact that, you know, there are many other fa- uh, factors that adversely impact automotive dealers that are non-variable risk factors. We have little control over that. The ones that we do have control over is competing in a, in a disruptive marketplace. And I still, it's funny to me, I just did, I've come doing some research on this right now. So I went to five dealers and, and to give this still, if I can get you that car today for, for a 100, are you kidding me? that's why people don't want to go to dealerships, right? And we know about, and so it's just amazing to me how many dealers are still operating in a, a really, really dysfunctional way where it's so easy to fix. It's just, it's sad. It's so easy to fix, but it's not
1: being fixed. Let me switch gears for a moment on the, what might my- might be the last question in this, in this section before we go to the enlightening lightning round, maybe. You talk about something that I've seen in my experience lately when friends communicate with me, but we're seeing you know, also much larger in society, which is this phenomenon of asynchronous communication. Right. right? And, and I don't know if you have this, or if this is maybe you know, people even younger than me, I'm in my 40s now, but I've got a couple friends who they don't call me, they don't even text message me anymore, They will send me a video of themselves communicating to me for like 90 seconds and then they'll invite me to send one back, you know, and it's like, dude, I was available, (laughs) you know, like we could have had (laughs) a conversation, but this whole thing, what, when you, when you talk about asynchronous communication, what do you see? Like, and what is, how is this, if it is going to become more of a thing in our society?
0: yeah so I, I think that what's interesting is I personally believe that in the as we enter in the next uh, ten or twenty years, we're actually going to see a reverence towards what we call full duplex dialogue, meaning two way real- time dialogue. A simplex dialogue only allows one direction at a time. I think that we will we are beginning to accept more and more. I tend to be a pretty futuristic and technologically savvy old guy, but I still have seen that if you take a look at where we can move people where we can make the most amount of money there was a study that was done back in the 1950s where they, they looked at the first graduating class of Harvard for their MBA program and I'm, I may not remember this completely right but this is generally the, the, the tenor of the, of the study is that they found that they divided these graduates into these various categories the analyst you know ones that were really thoughtful in terms of analytical you know the process-oriented persona uh, there's maybe another, you know, scientific persona. And then they had the communicator. And the communicator is a person that was, was able to not just put words together, but was able to use inflection and modulation and tonality and was able to move people through spoken communications. By far, well over 90% of all the wealth and prosperity accrued to the communicator. And I don't believe that that's changed. And I think that just because a lot of people like asynchronous dialogue and they like to use these other channels, I think that at the end of the day, we will see. I mean, take a look at it from, an, from another perspective. The new computer system is the, the OS of the spoken voice, right? We are yeah. moving. If you think about the cavemen and women days, you know, we begin by making grunt sounds that represented demands or requests, right? And then those turned into spoken language. And then those turned into written language. And then that turned into the democratization of written language through typewriters and printer presses. And then we decided to, to, to sort of institutionalize language through code and we created DOS, right? So we started to code the language in the 1980s. And then when Apple came out with a computer mouse, we were able to point at little iconic symbols and we started to communicate through pointing. Then we decided, let's take that on the road and we created smartphones where we could thumb the icons to have complex commands. So if you take a look at the evolution of communications, it's gonna go from grunting, to talking, to writing, to typing, to printing, to coding, to pointing, to thumbing, back to talking. Talking is the richest way for we humans to be able to communicate. And that's why Amazon and Google and Apple are looking to embed voice in every technology. As we start to move towards 5g technology and the libraries and the computing power continues to grow we'll have natural real spoken dialogue with machines and things which will make thumbing and texting kind of weird it'll be very old-fashioned and not very relevant i do think that speaking that speaking may be command driven and may wind up doing different things like you know tell mike i'm going to see him at four you know and just got an email from Nick, he won't, he's going to see you at four, right? So it may move it around, but at the end of the day, spoken ling- language is the future. Now, there's another thing I talk about in my book, What Customers Crave, is remember that we no longer live in a physical world. We live in a blended world. And the blended world means that, according to Google, they refer to it as micro-mobile moments. We experience our world through a combination of our physicality, and our engagement with a connected device. I'm not going to go into a restaurant until I Yelp it, right? I'm not going to go down someplace I don't know where it's out until I map it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, right? And so, like, take a look at Waze. Waze uses social community and hypercommunication and, and collaboration to be able to tell people where to get, pe- get places in a real human thinking way more than the one-dimensionality of a map. So I do think that we will continue to move towards blended experiences, but stay tuned, communication through human voice is where all the
1: wealth and all the prosperity will grow. Oh, yeah, I, I see that already, you know, in my, in my six-year-old where, you know, now she's starting to read and she can type. We, we've given her an iPhone almost as long as she can hold one. It's kind of an experiment in what a human being can become, you know, and I know we're not the only ones running this experiment, but right. she, before she could type on this thing, she would just tell it what she wanted to see, you know? Mm, yes, yes. And it was so funny for me to watch this five-year-old at the time. Yeah. Hey, hey Siri, find cookie world, C videos, you know, and all this. <laughs> really. But I, th- I think you're right. Oh, that's funny. And then that activated my my Siri, just saying that right here. Yeah, this thing, this thing about voice and these micro mobile moments, this mix of technology and real experience, but back to the thing that you were saying about that there, you think there's, we'll move even more toward this reverence toward full duplex dialogue. And, and I think you're right in the same way that we see a premium still on live sporting events, you know, concerts, anything that's real. And, and, and that's so much again about what you, your work is about, about experience back to this real human interaction. There's there's so far nothing we're aware of that can truly recreate that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And you know, believe me, I, you know, I, I talk for a living and I can tell you that every dime I've ever made and I've, I've started and sold many businesses and have had a pretty interesting, you know, and successful life. It all 100% is associated with my ability to have persuasive discussions, to be able to talk, right? If, if I didn't have the, the, the command for communication that I did, none of those opportunities would have ever come to me. And, you know, also keep in mind, we live in a superficial world. And I tell this to my four kids all the time. Our appearance, we're judged by our appearance, and but we're also, our intelligence is a perception of the language that we use, the precision of language. It's part of our personal brand. And people that take that, You know, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but at the end of the day, that is how we're judged. People think that I, you know, again, that I'm a Harvard graduate when I'm out communicating. And, you know, I'm just a dumb guy raised in San Bernardino, California, that happens to know how to talk
1: really, really well. I suspect that many people listening to this would love to develop how they're perceived and how effective they are, both the perception and the reality of, you know, being effective communicators I know there's probably no single simple trick or shortcut, but what, what advice or what encouragement would you give to somebody who wants to increase their command of this language, be more persuasive, be more respected, be more effective in this way?
0: Well, I think there's really three things that you can do and it's something that I learned early on in my life that served me really well. Number one is it, we have to have building blocks, right? And most people really surprisingly don't have very good building blocks and by that I mean a vocabulary. I can listen to, which I do all the time, complex medical lectures. And I know exactly what they're talking about because I understand the Latin roots. I understand the vernacular because I made a commitment to, to build my vocabulary. I have an amazing vocabulary because I decided I wanted to have an amazing vocabulary. It's not because I'm smarter. It's because I realized that when we're able to use a multi syllabology, uh, you know, some people say, Oh Nick, you're just gratuitously using words. Let me give you an example. If you go into a doctor's office and the doctor and your elbow hurts and the doctor looks at your elbow and goes, bro, I have no idea what's wrong with you. That's 50 bucks. You're going to leave there going, my God, that guy didn't know what was wrong with me and he charged me $50. If you go to the next doctor and you show them your elbow and he pulpates your elbow and looks at it for a few minutes and says, well, clearly you have an idiopathic condition. I'd like to, it's $50 and uh, thanks for coming in. Well, idiopathic just means I don't know what's wrong with your elbow in Latin, right? So the words have incredible perceived value, right? And this idea that you shouldn't use big words and you shouldn't use, I, I could be wrong about this, but being able to have this incredible quiver of, of vocabulary to be able to get my ideas into the head of another person, it's magic. Yeah. So there's a million online training programs or, or audio programs that can have you build, you know, 10,000 new words to your vocabulary just by understanding how we architect words, right? Got Even it. if you were to pick up 50 to 60 new important words that imp- because remember, the whole idea of spoken language is to have positive impact on others. So it's a good thing to be able to have this equipment of a quiver of great vocabulary. So number one, you got to have the building blocks Number two is that one of the things I've learned from working with speak, speech coaches and working with, with expert communication coaches is that it has a lot to do, Obama did this very, very well as a speaker. Obama learned the most powerful communication modality ever, silence. He understood that when you say something and you pause, you can supersize the power of communication, where most, most people think it's a barrage of frequency. The other, the, so I think silence is the biggest power of knowing when to pause and to hold that pause long enough because it's incredibly emotive. And the third thing is, you, we communicate physically. In fact, some suggest that 80% of our communication is through physicality. I would add to that inflection, modulation, volume right we're doing a project right now and there's this new thing called believe it or not it's called voice ai where the learning machine can listen to your voice and determine if you're depressed and to determine your state of mind based on the way in which you inflect the way in which you use the power of words and so i became a great communicator by communicating and i try this stuff and really when we communicate we're acting we're trying to we're trying to tell a story and the best communicators in the world know how to use the power of inflection, modulation, tonality, volume. And, you know, look, all great skills begin with a desire. And that's the genesis.
1: Now, thank you for breaking that down. That's that's really valuable. And that reminds me, too, as one who's always loved language. You know, I was, I was an English major. I was an Asian studies major. And, and I did what you're saying about. I've still got the dictionary, which is very archaic now, but, you know, this physical thing that every time I'd learn a new word, I'd circle it with a red, you know, pen and make a game of it. So, yeah, I, I, I love that. And, and it, it all begins with a desire. Yep. Absolutely. So, awesome. Okay. Let's go ahead and transition to the enlightening lightning round with your permission. How you doing, by yeah, the way?
0: Absolutely. Yep.
1: Good. Okay. Okay. So again, this is a series. It's intended to be a series of short questions. You're welcome to answer as long as you want, but my aim is for the most part to answer the question and step aside. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following question. Uh, Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. (laughs) Life is like a amazing journey. Okay. Number two, borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? I would say that we have
0: unlimited potential.
1: Mm. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? This is cheesy, but I'm gonna go with life rocks. Okay, number four, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? It's easy. The Power of Thinking Big by Dr. David Schwartz. Mm. Okay. Let me ask this while we're on the topic of books. What are you currently reading? Right now,
0: I am reading, well, actually, I do three books at a time. I would say the one that's uh, capturing my attention the most is I went back and decided to read Purple Cow by uh, Seth Godin, Mm. which is a a fun
1: book. Right on. And, And let me just... Explore the magic of thinking big for a moment. Would you be willing to share? How did that book come into your life? I
0: think it was dropped from a flying saucer or something. I mean, it (laughs) just I don't know It's so weird it uh, I I picked the book up as a young lad I think it was maybe 14. I don't know why I bought it, but I I it was the first book I ever purchased and I as a as a teenager I read the book um, I don't know eight or nine times a year And it it, it basically said, Nick, I know you're setting in uh, abstract poverty as a severely retarded child, but what I learned from him is that we all are special and that we can't use excuses. Uh, He has a whole section on excusitis. And so I stopped using excuses for not doing the things I wanted to do. I mean, I went from flunking bonehead English three times to multiple best-selling author, right? I went from being diagnosed as educationally handicapped to very prolific, successful inventor. And I think a lot of that had to do with what he taught me was, you don't get to give yourself the excuses that you're too old, you're too young, you're too stupid, you're too smart, you're too anything. And I believed it. I, 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 and you know what's interesting? I so many people, like even Seth Godin and, and other people I revere as some of some of my my favorite authors. They all mentioned that that book moved them as well. I, it's yeah. amazing. Almost every time I see somebody I admire a lot, it was that book that was the genesis of their
1: thinking. Yeah, that that book definitely comes up a lot in these in these conversations. That and of course, Think and Grow Rich. Yeah. And the other book that is probably the most common uh, response for my guests is um, Man's Search for Meaning.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, there's another thing. I was in a really weird part of my life and my brother went to, a book, uh, to an antique bookstore. And I was trying to decide, because one of the things about me is, you know, is that I sort of have so many things on my buffet that sometimes I get I get caught up to decide which one I should allow to have my attention, right? And, and sometimes I melent over that for a while. And, and, uh, and, you know, when you do the weird stuff that I do, you also are questioning, is this the best use of your time? You know, does this make sense? So I was in one of those places some, gosh, 30 years ago. And my, my twin brother had gone to, a, to an antique bookstore and he brought back this very, very tethered small book that he said he just caught his eye and thought I might like it. He didn't even open it up and the name of the book was The Power of Conscious Thought by Charles Wesley Kyle. It's a very rare book, it's hard to find. I think you can find maybe download versions of it and you might be able to find old reprints of it on Amazon. Nobody talks about this book. But I was so, I actually got in my car and I spent three days going to San Francisco where his offices were back in the 20s. I kind of get a jam because it was such an impact on my life. And what I learned from that book was, is that, and and it's, you know, it's from the Bible to most religious teachings to most philosophies say it, but it wasn't until I read this book that really persuaded me that it's really about our, we get what we think of, not what we deserve, not what we earn, but we get what we think about emotionalized always. In fact, Neville talks about that in his teaching, as a, you know, he was a metaphysician about the same time. And, and it sounds too dopey to, you know, it's kind of the secrets, but it turns out that beliefs that I have that are emotionalized manifest with mathematical certainty. And it doesn't mean that I don't have to do the work. It doesn't mean that I don't have to stand, you know, I, you know, I don't have to, to do the heavy lifting, but the things that I emotionalize that I learn from the power of conscious thought, uh, of constructive thought, I should say. That was a change for me. I started spending more time pushing and more time allowing, more time to believe and more time feeling the feeling of what it was like to achieve that. And and it always happened. You know,
1: I've had some similar experiences and I hear people talk about this and I think this is one area of life where this is one (laughs) of, of probably many where language as useful as it can be can also be an impediment to understanding. And, and so what I'd love to ask you about, you know, based on what you've shared and and your understanding of this and, and what it brings up for me and my experience is this about how, how, okay. So there's two parts to this. One is, I think it's easier to have or sustain emotionalized thought when the subject or object as it is, is something that we truly want it's our heart's desire it's yeah. part of our life purpose perhaps it's on our path versus when we're telling ourselves I, I should be an engineer i should be a doctor right you know maybe my family's pushing me that way so what what if any what insight do you have about i suppose generating in some cases maybe it's discovering in other cases it might be generating in other cases it might be sustaining but when it comes to because at some level to me this also equates to faith, it equates to courage, yeah. you know, believing it's possible, believing I'm capable, you know, and then holding on to that as a living reality for me. But yeah. what's your experience when it comes to knowing whether this, this subject of your emotionalized thought is a true, you know, heart's desire and worth it, or whether it is or isn't, how do you generate and sustain emotionalized thought as a practical matter?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Well, I think that there are two schools of thought about how this works in the first place. One thought is this is a cosmic universal God thing that when we, when we believe that we are, you know, creators, when we believe that we are different from all animals because we are creators, you know, you go into the city and everything that you visualize was at one point a series of neur- neurons moving around in some human's head. That's, that's incredible, right? But yeah. the way that it happened was through some cosmic connection. Another belief is, is that this is psychiatry, right? That when we believe something, then we create, then we create, we, it's, we change our optics, we find the, the barriers and we move towards where we want to go. And, you know, I, I, I don't really think it matters of which school of thought because the net results are the same, right? So for those people that believe that this is not a cosmic God thing, that's fine because they don't have to, you know, for those people that believe that it's not a psychological thing, that it's all God, that's, that's fine too. I don't think it really matters. I think that when we set out to do something that we believe that we want, that is not authentic t- to our core, uh, the good news is is the u- universe will oftentimes intervene with the goal of stopping that from happening because the vibrational changes that have to happen, whether they be psychological or spiritual, they are oftentimes, you know, that we, we can't fake the manifestations of things that we really, really want. So it, 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 usually. Sometimes you can physically get there, but you'll never, it will never, it'll always be anticlimactic and not be the thing that you thought you desired.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and the other part of this that I spend some time thinking about is, you know, because I marvel at this and I've seen in my own life, whenever I've truly wanted something, as I would describe it, and of course, maybe I, we're always rewriting the past through the filter of the present. So I'm aware yeah. of that as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> but whenever I've truly wanted something, I've gotten it right? And I think it's this principle that you're you're talking about. And at the same time, as I look to the future, and maybe it's because my life is so good right now. I know this isn't true for everyone listening to this. But I look to this future of infinite possibility, and I think, what do I want? What should I want if there is such thing as a should? And then when I listen to the injunctions of many great spiritual teachers who say, drop all thoughts of the future, you know, drop Mm -hmm. the future completely, or work with no thought for the fruits of your labor. Right. Right. There's also that. So what do you, what do you say about balancing or maybe balance isn't the thing, but about having an intention, having a specific desire versus just being in the present moment, unconcerned with what your effort might or might not yield.
0: You know, that is a very powerful, that is a, that is maybe the big question. Right. And I think that from my own life experience, I, I, I find that I have to go back to those principles, you know, is this thing that I want evolutionary or is it destructive, right? And the other thing is, does this mission really matter to me? And then, you know, is it really serving other people? Then just leave it, then just leave what the object is alone. I'll give you a perfect example and this is, even for me, these are the kinds of things that have happened in my life that are hard to believe. I've I've been extremely blessed to have achieved many things in my life. But one of my biggest self-disappointments and it's it and it plagued me for a good part of my life is the fact that I dropped out of college in my senior year. I felt like that was a box that I wanted to check to prove all of the teachers and all of the people that called me educationally handicapped that I was in fact worthy, right? It was it was a big sort of psycho defect for me. And I and I remember reflecting on the fact that I believe that there is this white truck on the other side of the country that is going to deliver to me a solution to this. I have no idea what it is. I mean, this is a true story. I don't know what it is, but it's just shipped. And I concentrated on this white truck coming in and solving this this, this psycho defect of of feeling insecure about my lack of academic training, especially when you work in universities and work in the, the corners that I work in. You know, the first thing people want to know is what are the letters behind your name? And then I got a phone call. This went on for about three months. I get a phone call from uh, Dr. Lopez, and Dr. Lopez is the the dean of uh, a graduate nursing program at Western University of Health Sciences. And they go, look, they think, we know that you're a healthcare futurist, and we've you know, seen your demo reels. And we'd really love for you to come, and we'd like to hire you to come and speak to our graduating class about the future of healthcare. And I said, you know, we we they checked out the schedule, scheduled it. And so I get there to deliver this uh, commencement. I've never, I've speaked in all around the world, but I've never delivered a graduation commitment, commencement. I was a little bit nervous about it, frankly. And so I get there, I deliver what I think was a good commencement to these amazing people that invested their life to get their doctorate degree in graduate nursing. And then all of a sudden, the provost stands up from the university and says, now at this time, we would like to present a graduation for Dr. Nicholas Webb. And then he starts reading this declaration, according to the board of trustees of Western University of Health Sciences, we would like to bestow upon you, Dr. Nicholas Webb, your doctorate degree in humane letters for your contribution to education and healthcare. Wait a minute, I have a doctorate degree now. (laughs) Three weeks later, the president of the university calls me and says, we think you are an interesting chap and I would like for you to open up our center for innovation. Oh, and by the way, I think you would be an amazing adjunct professor. And I'm like, what universe am I living in where educationally handicapped Nicholas Webb is a, a doctor and a professor and now a chief innovation? It's impossible. So I guess the point that I'm making is, is that I don't know what was in the truck and I don't even know, I didn't focus on what that would be. I just, I presented the fact that I wanted to address this, the fret that I went through and, and not focusing on what wasn't there but what was possible. What is possible to release this feeling in my life? And I look, I could, I could have written a thousand scripts as to possibilities. I could have never written that script. And today, I continue to run three years later. I continue to run the Center for Innovation. I have an amazing team. I'm having an incredible impact in the university and I'm having the best time of my life. So I, you know, I think it's about, do you focus on it? I don't think you focus on the bright shiny object, but I think you focus on the feeling. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I've learned as a professional speaker, they'll never remember anything you said, but they'll probably remember the way you left them in terms of how they felt. And that's what I focus on.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, congrats on that degree, by the way. That's really yeah, neat. That's
0: I make really my kids cool. call me Dr. Webb, by
1: the way. <laughs> as, <laughs> as you are well entitled to. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's great. Okay. These are the great conversations that sometimes emerge from the enlightening lightning round, despite my intention to keep the questions brief. Yeah, right. I'll try to be so more brief in my answers. No, that was fun. That was really fun. Okay. Number five. So you travel a ton. Well, you have. (laughs) What's one travel hack, meaning something you do when you travel or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
0: One of the things I realized is that there was a point in my life where I had to ask myself, does the pain of travel, is it greater than the pleasure of speaking, right? And that's an analysis I think that every professional speaker, I mean, I speak at 70 events around the world, and so, what I realized is I had to create door-to-door journeys that took away friction and pain. And so, what I, you know, I've lived for, I moved to Scottsdale, Arizona a year ago. I've never driven to the, to the airport. I have a car pick me up. I walk right through clear. I go right to the first class line. I sit in the front of the airplane. Now I know this sounds elitist. My, my only point is, is that in order for, what I was finding is that the package was getting damaged in shipment and I was the package, right? So, rather it's getting a car service, rather it's whatever, whatever. Look at the door-to-door journey and try to, in advance, figure out ways to reduce the pain. I, I'll give you an example. One thing I see every time, I see people running through the airport because they didn't get there. I tell my kids and they can, they can, they can tell you to recite this in their sleep. I'm always early, but I'm never late. I'm never running through the airport, freaked out that I'm gonna miss a plane. So I think journey map your experience when you travel. And when you do that, you will find that you can
1: find lots of ways to remove friction and pain. Nick, you're nothing if not congruent and consistent <laughs> in your <laughs> message, so. Right, there you go, see journey mapping. Yeah, that's beautiful, <laughs> thank you. And, and by the way, in nearly 100 interviews, no one has given that response, that's really. That's oh, is beautiful. that right, yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, cool. that's great. That is next level thinking. Okay, number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: Well, I think that uh, for one thing, from a health perspective, you know, I am 61, soon to be 62 years old. Most people are surprised by that. And, and I think the reason is, is that I've, well, for one thing, I've been a vegetarian my entire life. I eat in a very thoughtful way. You know, if, you know, as Steve Jobs said on his deathbed, if you don't make food your medicine, then you'll spend the rest of your life making medicine your food. And so what I've come to realize is that if you can, and I've doubled down on it recently, is living on a high density, high nutritive density diet. That was one thing because I sort of fell off that for a while and gained some weight got back on it and lost weight. So I think the things that I've stopped doing is eating any kind of processed. I, I almost know anything that has flour in it, you know, I don't add salt to anything, I eat all low sodium. So I think just a thoughtful diet. And the good news is, is that we know what a good diet is, it's a whole food diet. You know, the more fruits and vegetables you can get in your life, I mean, study after study, and I, I live in healthcare, is, it's about a whole food diet. I think the things that I've started to do is I've started to, from a a fitness perspective, I added a standing desk. Very rarely do I sit down. So most of the time, I'm standing up. And there's one study that suggested that if you stand all day instead of sitting, it's the same as running a 5K every week in terms of additional energy. And if you study robotics, you can see that one of the problems with uh, humanoid type robotics is that they use a ton of energy not to tip over. Right? And people spend a lot of energy, uh, caloretic energy, trying not to tip over because they're constantly correcting. So standing was, a, uh, and there's a great website called juststand.org that has a lot of really interesting data about the amazing impact. The other thing is that I found, and this is maybe just a statistical anomaly, I found that I in started inventing more the day that I started standing. I, 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 became, I, I didn't go into the couch potato space and became more lucid and energetic. Also, when I do Zoom calls, which I do all day long, I present differently when I'm standing versus setting. I, I come off completely different. I'm more energetic and it, and, uh, it feels right. Yeah. So, I'd say those are the things from a health perspective. Uh, the other thing is, is that I've done something on projects because I do have a little bit of ADD. I'm easily, you know, I squirrel and off I go, right? So, one of the things I've done is I'm asking myself, is it worthy? Is it worthy? And I, it's interesting to find out how many things really aren't worthy. Is this is this activity of this project? This what is it worthy? It's amazing what a transformation that has had in my life because I've realized that so many things that I would have otherwise endeavored
1: were absolutely not worthy of my time. Interesting. Where did you pick up that? Was that and a question that came to you one day? Did was that some, someone else? That well, you, you know, I was from?
0: talking about in writing Heyday. I was talking about missions. Mm-hmm. And then there, and in there, I use the term, you know, missions that matter because everybody thinks they're on a mission, but does the mission matter? Well, how do you determine if it matters? Is it worthy of you exchanging your time on planet Earth for? And mm-hmm. it's amazing when you put it to that standard. Not always, uh, you know, not usually,
1: <laughs> uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Time for sure is and yeah. energy. These very personal, non-renewable resources. Absolutely All right. Number okay. Number seven. What's one thing you wish every American new,
0: I think really how blessed they are. You know, when you travel the world, it's really easy to take the American lifestyle for granted. But when you see, when you're traveling, and you know, I've traveled throughout Asia and South America, and you see the looks on these little kids' faces, and they're just, you know, they they have bad clothes, and and you know are clearly malnourished and have no shoes, and you look at your own babies, and you think, God, you know, I, it's, it's, we, it's, it's a, it's a sin. It's outrageous for us to wake up in, and and have those, you know, first world problems that we all tend to have. We're, we're incredibly blessed, and you know, it turns out uh, according to Think to Go, Think, uh, well, Doctor, you know, Whittle in the great book, the science of getting rich and the and Think and Grow Rich. You know, it's, it turns out that one of the most motive forces for success. That, that creates the locomotion of success is waking up every day thankful and throughout the day. Because being thankful uh, weaponizes ideas. It, it just does. And so I think that every American should be really, really thankful to live as this incredible country and to have the freedoms and wealth that we enjoy every day.
1: Yeah. Are you available to give that speech to my kids a little later tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) They they don't hear it from me. I'm not so sure it would be effective from you. No, it is. I agree with you. What you're saying resonates. And I love the way you've talked about that, being thankful, weaponizes ideas. Okay. Coming down the stretch on the lightning round. What's the most important or useful relationship advice that you have ever learned or successfully applied?
0: Well, I've been married for 30 successful years. And, and so how do you define success? I think people have to ask themselves, what is a successful relationship? And my brother told me years ago, my older brother, that the definition in his view of a successful marriage is that by virtue of that union, both people were in continuous evolution and benefit. That By virtue of them being together, they continued to get better and, and, to, and that their, their, their relationship was additive, whereas most relationships are subtractive. And in my case, my wife is, in my view, she is perfection. And even though we've been married for 30 years, I wake up every day and I'm not exaggerating. I try to be good enough for her. I try. I'm still courting her. And I think that so many people, it's sad because they, they lose, if, if, you know, I get goosebumps sometimes watching my wife cooking in the kitchen from the other room. It's when you lose that, then you become... You're, you're sharing a paycheck in a dwelling uh, or sharing a, a bank account in a dwelling and and gosh I, I, that's sad. So how do you do that? is that you know you you have to realize that you get what you give and and when I, I know that that because my wife knows how much I love her and cherish her, that she tr- you know she treats me so well and is so thoughtful and such a great friend. And you know really, I've been married for like five thousand years because my wife and I have worked together. At home, I've always worked for my home office since the day she and I met. And, oh. you know, we work together every day, we live together, and we still like and love each other a lot. So, I think that really comes from, you know, you if you commit to them, uh, they will commit to you in a very, very big way. But I I think that the dirty little secret is I married
1: somebody who is just awesome and she made it really That's That's great. Well, it sounds like a bit of luck and a lot of work and great awareness. Yeah. So, okay, and then number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important thing you've learned about money, or what's something you're always sure to do with it, or you never do with it?
0: You know, it's funny. I, I'm really, really good at making money. I'm really, really bad at managing money, right? And I used to think this is so funny you asked that question because I just had this discussion with my wife a couple of days ago. A friend of mine, you know, he and I are the same age, and he's an ophthalmologist, and he would actually, on the weekends, go in and, and uh, massage his stock portfolio on his computers. It was his, you know, and he, and all this kind of stuff. And I remember back in whenever it was in 2006 or seven, when the markets crashed, he lost two thirds of his wealth or something. And, and me on the other hand, you know, I spend money like a drunk sailor. I just buy, I buy gadgets. You know, I, I just bought a brand new Porsche. I drive, uh, I have a new Ford Raptor. I just bought a new Polaris side by side. I buy, I waste money like an imbecile. And so I would say, first, don't take my advice. (laughs) And second of all, though, this was my conclusion. I had a really good time. I had a super good time. I've traveled the world. I've bought bright, shiny objects, and I'm still okay. And ironically, I'm in the I'm in a better financial space than my ophthalmologist colleagues because I focused on abundancy over scarcity. Sounds corny, but it turns out that I see, there's a great motivational speaker by the name of Vitel, Joe Vitel, I believe. He has this ridiculous belief that the more money he spends, the more money comes in. Like, oh my God, don't tell your your financial planner that. That's ridiculous. (laughs) The problem with him is, is that turns out that the more money he spends, the more money that comes in because he has that belief. And you know, what I find is that I always said, my wife goes. I know what you're going to say. You're going to buy this Porsche, and then next week, a hundred and twenty thousand dollar project comes in. Every time, hundred twenty thousand dollars, three months, it's paid for. Right. So I don't know how it works. I'm not suggesting that you try it. It's way too dangerous. <laughs> Stay away from sharp objects, by all means. But for me, I have found that the the best way for me personally. I mean, obviously, I have some disciplines because I have the adult supervision of my wife. But I find that if you focus on money from a scarcity perspective, these people that are constantly save, 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 for what, to, to make sure your parents have a, a your, or your kids have enough money for a fancy burial? I, 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 don't, I don't know, I, my philosophy on this is probably all screwed up. But I will tell you this, is that I have had an incredibly, really good time wasting money. And I know that's not good financial advice, but I will tell you, it may be good life advice. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, if it works for you, it works. <laughs> right? That's it. So that's great.
0: Now, by the way, that's one piece of advice that I strongly suggest people don't take. I'm just, I'm just being honest. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, there's something to be said for anyone sharing, you know, his or her experience fully and authentically yeah. and, and you're doing that. So that's great. Okay. So the last question on any lightning lightning round is even though there is one last section here in writing and creativity where I'd love to ask you a few questions about that if you're still good to go. Yep. But, so the last question here in the enlightening lightning round is just if people want to connect with you, they want to learn more from you, of course they can go on Amazon or to any fine bookseller and buy one of your books, but what what else would you have them do?
0: Well, you know, I, my cup of throne is over and I'm, you know, so I, I'm in a point in my life where you know, I, I, I really don't actively seek out much in the way of business, but in my speaking world, assuming that speaking is actually a thing, I don't really think it is any more a thing. My website is nickwebb.com with two Bs. And then I do have a consulting practice. I do a lot of executive coaching and I do primarily, I do strategy for large corporations and medium-sized corporations to help them have future ready strategies. And that website is simply goleaderlogic.com. Yeah. And if uh, they're interested in, you know, Western University of Health Sciences is where I work part time as a chief innovation officer. And we always have some fun things there. We're always looking to collaborate with cool people there as well.
1: Great. Okay. And as an expression of gratitude to you for sharing your experience and your wisdom with me and everyone listening, one of the things I've done is I've gone onto kiva.org, the micro, loan, micro lending site, and I've made a $100 micro loan to a 34 year old woman who lives in. Bokhtar Tajikistan, who will use this money to buy fabric and thread to expand her embroidery business to improve the quality of life for herself, her family, people in her community. No people listening won't see this, but here's Uh, a video. Oh, that's cool. I love that. That is awesome. Thank you. I love that. So thank you for giving me a reason to go make that one. Yeah, that is awesome. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay. So the last part of the interview here, I just want to ask you a few questions about the creative process, about writing, maybe one or two about marketing and promoting a book. And I only say that because I know many authors or aspiring authors think that finishing the manuscript or getting it published is the finish line, where the sad reality is if people don't know about it or they don't care, it's not probably very satisfying for people. But let me start by asking, this this is maybe a big question, but you can answer it in any way that feels right to you. You've written now more than five books. You've published five, right? You've got, you've talked about a couple more, the fixing healthcare, heyday. So many, writing is clearly a big part of your life. Yeah. What habits and routines do you have when it comes to writing?
0: Well, I, listen, I've written really bad books early in my life. And after, you know, with things called Amazon reviews, there's nothing more painful than somebody talking about what an imbecile you are. So about 20 years ago, I decided to stop writing bad books, right? And You know, it was interesting, Uh, somebody once asked Seth Godin, you know, how is it that you've become a multiple, you know, if I'm remembering the quote correctly, best-selling author? How do you keep on being a New York Times best-selling author? How is this even possible? You know, what's your marketing trick? What, what, what uh, do you, use? social media? Is it omni-channel marketing? I mean, what do you, what do you do at PR? Is it, uh, he goes, uh, kind of in disgust, he responded, I write really good books, right? So the secret to being a successful author is writing really good books, Right, I think that a lot of people think it's a project, but it, it 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 is art. Right, you you're producing something that has to be exquisite, especially in a time of what we call hyper influential communities. In other words, people who read books and talk about those books on things like the Amazon review. Right, so you start by by only really, you have to be willing to be committed to writing a good book. I find that most good books are like a country western song, are like a, a they're like a a bumper sticker, you know, take this job and shove it. Then you have the 15 ways to quit your job, right? So, I believe that the hierarchy, because I'm very programmatic, you start with your with your country western song or your bumper sticker title, and then you break it down into actionable items. That to me, but but you have to begin with a really, really good novel. What people want is novel, a brandable novel, differentiated proposition, right? When I work what customers crave, and the name itself was uh, like what do customers crave right it's a, that's a that's a provocative title what do customers crave because that's really what it's all about right and then i i said here's what customers crave and you know i uh, and and I, I i delivered on that on that bumper sticker so i think you start with a good premise that is differentiated that you and i think the best way to write a book is to start with a book proposal because the book proposal forces you into doing a competitive analysis. It forces you into flushing out the messages and the differentiated value of the book. And then it forces you to build out your chapter outline. Because with, don't ever write a book without, it, without a book proposal. Because you're, it'll take you four times as long and it'll be a crappy book. So I, I and, and here's the cool thing about starting with a book proposal is the book proposal can be you can start shopping the book proposal to
1: publishers
0: whilst you begin the process of building out the manuscript.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And as we as the conver- as we have this conversation, one thing you know, people who listen to this, I think, are predominantly interested in writing nonfiction. So just kind of acknowledging this yep. might be advice that's more applicable to nonfiction than fiction, which is its own yep. world. Fiction. Yeah, and. Also part of what's interesting here as well is that the idea of a book proposal in a traditional publishing world, and I wonder, even if people are thinking they will self-publish or they might self-publish, that a book proposal is still a good idea.
0: It's mandatory because remember that the, the, the instrument of a book proposal is a business plan for the book. Yeah. And by the way, if you're, you know, unless, you know, and people that write novels, I mean, God bless them because the chances of success with non, with, I mean, with fiction is really low. But here's the cool thing about, about nonfiction is that you really, like when I wrote a book on customer experience, I decided that I was going to add a customer experience consulting arm to my consulting. I became a global guru top 30, meaning the top global gurus on customer ex- service or customer experience. I've won that five years in a row. I, my f- people read my book, they call me and they hire me to, to fix their broken stuff. So n- never write a book unless they're, in, in my opinion, never write a book that doesn't have a business model associated with it because you're not, I'm, you know, even a book that's doing really, really well, you may make ten dollars or $20,000 on a book. It's not, you're not going to get rich writing a book. But if you're thoughtful and you get, and you put it with a service product, you know, I make millions of dollars in my consulting practice and there, and and my, cons- my, my, Books are in many ways brochures, right? I mean, they have to be valuable in of themselves or they don't get good ratings and people don't read them, but you know, you have to have a back-end business model. So the, the neat thing about the proposal talks about who are your competitors, how do you differentiate your message with competitive titles, how big is the marketplace, who is your key reader for this, for this book, all of those things you need to
1: decide way before you start writing a book. Yeah. Well, and, and all of that makes sense, you know, because as much as we're talking about kind of the competitive landscape and your business model and this kind of thing, as we know, a book ultimately comes down to its reader. Absolutely. And, and understanding who the reader is, what the reader wants, what this book can do for them, you know, that kind of thing. It's, yeah. it's critical. And, and on that topic, as you're writing a book, you know, well, you've done all that thinking, you've done all that research. How aware are you in the moment of drafting of how your words will be received by the reader. Do you have kind of a, a composite reader profile? Do you have a specific person in mind? Are you writing to yourself? Like what's your relationship with your reader in the act of writing?
0: You know, I think it's, uh, it, it, I, I do think, it, like the, the advantage is when I write a book on innovation, like I, the one that my, my most current book that's on the shelves today, I serve executives in medium to large corporations to help them get to a much better place. So I'm referencing what their pain points are, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and as I wrote what customers crave, the one thing that's critical is to understanding what your potential customer hates and what they love. And you help them avoid the things they hate and you help them build a movement towards the things they love. That's what I call the hate love persona and what customers crave. Same thing is true when you're writing for a book. So I have the advantage of knowing my customers so well I know what keeps them up at night. I know what their pain points are. I know what they aspire to. And I surgically architect the book to help them. You know, you, uh, you, you, you have to help people in a book. And, and the other thing is, you know, I was told at one time, you know, I used to, in my early speaking days, I would go out on a stage and I would deliver great content. And I would make $5,000 for a speech. And it wasn't until I realized that the content's not what they're paying you for. If you want to go into twenty-five and thirty thousand dollars as a keynote speaker, thirty-five thousand, you got to be an entertainer. And I would say writers have to realize that if that this has to be stories, examples, evidentiary support, right? The biggest mistake people make is that you know if I want customers, grab a good examples. You know, take, take for an example the company at X, Y, and Z. What is in? How does In and Out Burger do this? And how does this and right? So people want they want you to take them on a journey, just because it's a nonfiction doesn't mean that they want to be, they, they, they want a journey. And what I do in the way I architect my books, I always leave everybody with a takeaway at the end of each chapter. I've always done that and it's very well received. But don't think that you can content vomit and get a good book out. It's not that easy. The difference between those books that do well and in fact, I would argue like I, I, I although I like Seth Godin, I think his book The Dip for an example. It was a concept that went on way, way too long and I never You know, I, I, he could have done it in a paragraph, but he didn't. And that was a in, that was, and, and you look at some of the reviews on Amazon, many people are saying the same thing. So you got to take people on a journey and you got to give them a, you got to give them a deliverable. And and most, most writers don't do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, some books probably are better left at the bumper sticker stage.
0: Absolutely. Right. (laughs)
1: You know, absolutely. But you know, the
0: important thing to remember about this whole thing, you know, I've, I've spent my, you know, a good part of my life and continue as a new product developer. I, you know, I, I in fact, I just filed a set of patents on a mass steril, rapid mass sterilization system that I'm working to, to prototype here in the next week or so. So, you know, I, I, I could tell you that this is a new product development activity. And in new product development, we do a thing called stage gate analysis, where we take a look at three things. Is there a need, problem or opportunity at the top of this pyramid that your book is addressing? Is there a need, problem, or opportunity for that book? Is it, do people need this message? Is there a problem that you need to solve? Or is there an opportunity for you to bring to, to address a topic that could serve other people? The other one is, can you make it? Right? If you're not, you know, and that's called the build. You know, can you build this thing? You know, if you're, if you're not likely going to get published and getting published is hard today, then do you have 30,000 bucks to be able to print this thing and typeset it and get it text edited and so on? And then the last thing is, can you sell it? You know, is there a market for it? Do you, will, will your pedigree as an author allow you to compete against Malcolm Gladwell and others, right? So it's the need, you know, is there a need, can you build it and can you sell it? That's the triangular assessment that we use when we look at developing any product and books are of no exception.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to me how books are, they are in some ways very much an art form and in other ways they are very, it can be very strategic and very tactical, you know, and it's this blend that when it comes off, right, it really is magic. It is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, like on heyday, most people do New Year's resolutions. I do birthday resolutions and I take my birthday resolutions extremely seriously. Whatever I say I'm going to do on my birthday, I always hit it. And I was setting up at a resort up in Sedona and I got up at three in the morning, which I do most mornings, and I went up to the to the area, I watched the sun come up, and in a period of four hours, I wrote the entire book proposal and a good part of the first three chapters. Wow. And uh, so, completely different from anything else I did because it came from the belly, right? It came from from my experience, it didn't come from research, and, and you know, you read my books and there's, you know, there's a ton of research associated with them. With this, I didn't have, this is, These are the lessons that these great teachers taught me. And I'm going to share this story with you. And so books can come to even the same author in in different ways. You know, sadly, everybody dies with a book in them. And that's unfortunate because books are an instrument that we use to positively impact other people. I think everybody has almost an obligation to write that book. This is what we're here to do.
1: Yeah. No, I I think you're right. And, And hearing you say that now reminds me not sure who it's attributed to, but that idea of whenever anyone dies, it's as though a library burned down.
0: Yeah, right, I think Brian Tracy, uh, yeah.
1: Quote, yeah. Yeah, there's so much noise, there's so many things competing for our attention today, so much is personalized and on-demand and you know, new technologies that didn't exist even a few years ago. It's harder than ever to get noticed, I think. That's my experience, many people's experience. What's your experience when it comes, because one piece of advice, you know, as I look at what people have been saying for the last couple decades, at least, when it comes to writing, getting noticed, getting your your work out in the world, is to have a platform. Yeah. What's your thought about a platform? How do you, if you do, go about consciously building or maintaining it?
0: I think the key is, and I actually, I I could have a huge platform as an innovation thought leader if I just did innovation. I could have a huge platform in customer experience if I just did customer experience. I mean, I've got a, a fine platform. My problem is I really do have a attention deficit disorder. I can't focus on one thing for too long until I tell get bored. But I think the key is two things. One is that it is said that the universe loves a specialist. And if you're looking to be the, big, the business thought leader, forget it. If you want to be the HR thought leader, now we're talking. If you want to be the IT thought leader, now we're talking. But even more, the IT security thought leader, right? So today to build a platform, when everybody is connected and, uh, and, and, and connections and channels are ubiquitous, to succeed to build a platform, you must be committed to granularity you must be committed to granularity. It is really hard to get a big platform in a big space, but you can get a big platform on a granular space without a lot of money. And that means, and, and the, the thing is, is that they say success isn't what you do, it's what you do consistently. Building a platform is the same thing. You know, you, it's, and, and these things are inexpensive. Like they do require time. You know, build a YouTube channel, get a halfway decent webcam, have something meaningful to say in a very niche area and day after day sharing it on social channels you will build that platform. Just like Seth Godin said about writing good books you have to deliver good content and here's a tip that I find that works extremely well. When you're building a platform there's nothing better than video and if you're going to use video make it no more than four minutes long and if you're going to use video Make it one of these things because the Google and the YouTube algorithms love this. Do a list or do a how-to video for every one of them. When you describe your video, say, how to drive growth in the middle of a global pandemic. How to, how to, right, are the five things that everybody needs to know about successful publishing or even go more granular: the five things that everybody needs to know about building an integrated internet security strategy in a medium-sized organization, right? The more the more granular you get and the more consistent they are to that granular narrow rail that you're gonna stay on, the faster you become a thought leader. And the good news is is that these slivers, these small granular rails can be extremely lucrative and you can quickly become a thought leader in one.
1: Interesting, and I love the way that you're describing, describing that. Thank you for sharing that. Let me ask you this, knowing you've written a large volume of words in your life. What are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them?
0: Well, I'm a little, little intimidated about answering that question with a English major. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I, so I probably can't speak much to style, right? But I, I will tell you that, you know, it, there is, and I've learned this as a speaker and as a writer, it's one thing to say words, It's another thing to get those words into the brain of another human being. And to do that, in my experience, they have to be quippy and they have to be stories and they have to be, you have to weaponize them with, you know, when my dog recently needed to take some allergy medicines, believe it or not, we couldn't get him to take the pills. So what did I do? I wrapped the pills in baloney, right? So, to a certain extent, we have to wrap our content in baloney. I don't mean that in a fake way. What I mean by that is that they need to be delicious and ingestible. So, I'll do a, you know, I could do a portion of a chapter on enterprise innovation that says broad-based methodologies of implementing innovation in a large enterprise. Or I could say, let's make innovation real, dot, dot, dot. No, seriously. I like the second one better. Yeah. Right, so I, I think that when we can do stuff like that, when we we make things approachable and fun and quippy and and we can, and we can use storytelling, that's the best way I think to architect a, a book. It's a series of if you read the best and most successful authors, from Malcolm Gladwell to Seth Godin to any of the contemporaneous uh, best-selling authors, they, they it, it's a it's a really good rhythm. It's a good song, it's got a great beat. It has a redundancy, but you don't see the redundancy. It's just, it's entertaining. That's the hard part. If you're delivering content, you will fail. That's easy, content's easy. Delivering with style, humor, stories, that's a little
1: harder. Okay, so final question here is what advice or encouragement do you leave with anyone listening who's either still in the starting blocks on their own creative project, or they're in the belly of the beast?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Les Brown, one of my favorite speakers and authors famously said, anything worth doing well is worth doing badly. And I think the problem is, is that we we get into a point where we have perfection paralysis, where we think that we start immediately thinking it's got to be perfect or bad things could go wrong. And I find that the number one reason that people fail in innovation, in writing, in business, and even life, the number one reason that people fail is they never really start. They don't pull out of their driveway. That you may take some wrong turns. You might even expose yourself to an automobile accident, but nothing happens until you pull out of the driveway. You will course correct. You may hit some headwinds. But the biggest mistake that people make on their journey to success is they never ever start. And you have to realize that just like I said, with I have no business inventing medical products. I mean, I'm getting, I, like right now, I'm in the middle of one of the most exciting projects I've ever been in my life. I'm getting ready to complete a documentary called Fixing Healthcare. That brings in some of the world's experts on the future of healthcare. I mean, the, the name of the movie itself is bold and ridiculous. Like, why is Nick Webb from San Bernardino, California, this educationally handicapped person, going to narrate to the world how to fix one of the most vexing problems of our time? And it started with me being willing to pull out of the driveway. And you know what? I'm pretty excited about what was created. I did what, what Wolfgang Puck teaches people to be a great, to be a great chef is really simple. Start with amazing ingredients and then don't screw them up. And I just brought in some of the smartest, coolest kids I could find to help me narrate this story. And it turned out it wasn't even my story. It was just, I was just the the bystanding curator of this piece of art. So I think that, you know, the thing that I would encourage people and take it from somebody that has been discouraged, my family thought I was handicapped and my teachers thought I was handicapped, society thought I was handicapped and I want, went on to live what anybody would consider to be an incredibly blessed life. The only thing I contribute that to is starting and I think that's where most people and, and, and you know, once you start, you, you probably have to start again and, and again and again. But starting is the beginning and most people, I can't tell, there's a guy that, uh, that I've tried to mentor a little bit about writing a book. He's had this book in him which is an incredibly clever idea. He called me a few weeks ago. This is the seventh year he asked me his opinion about how to, you know, cross the T's and where he should put commas. It's just sad because don't strive for perfection. I think it was Thoreau that said strive for productivity. And that means starting. I mean, I know that sounds corny and almost too ironic or too obvious to be ironic, but starting is where success starts.
1: Well, I think that's a great place to end. Is there anything that you'd like no, to- No,
0: Listen, I, I, I love your work. I love what you're doing here. I know that you're impacting a lot of people in a very meaningful way. And that's why I was really glad to be able to spend some time. I hope that my, my answers were additive. They're just one guy's opinion from my little perch here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And hopefully through some of the things I said, I may have inspired somebody to, to do what I've done and others.
1: I, I think you have. You've inspired me. And, and I realize, you know, I, I go back to that, that story often of, you know, we're each feeling our own different part of the elephant. Right. You know? And so each one of these hopefully helps each other understand what others are seeing and, and feeling and knowing. So it's done that for me. So I, I thank you. I'm really glad we connected. And although I don't know the next time our paths will cross, i look forward to it. Definitely let you know when this comes out. And next time you're in Salt Lake, I hope you'll let me know if it works yeah. for us to connect. I'd love to, to do that too.
0: That'd be great. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time.
1: Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world,